Welcome to the circular future. The race is on to decrease emissions around the globe, with temperatures currently forecasted to shoot past 1.5 degrees. Also on the rise, the discussion of carbon credits, and it is heating up. There is a lot of confusion around carbon credits, and are we all even talking about the same thing anyway? There's perhaps an equal amount of concern that greenwashing has taken place, which are efforts to make a project or company look more environmentally sound than it actually is. So let's unpack carbon credits, a worthy discussion for the circular future. My name is Stephanie McClarty. I am head of sustainability for Quantum Lifecycle Partners. And this conversation today is like carbon credits 101 what they are, how they work, and how they apply to businesses. One reason for confusion is there's actually two types of carbon markets, which most people don't realize, the compliance carbon market and the voluntary carbon market. The compliance carbon market is set up by government regulators to keep large emitters of emissions at or under a certain threshold. Participation for these large emitters is mandatory, and unless you're a very heavy emitter, Currently, this carbon market likely does not apply to you. Then there is the voluntary carbon market. The voluntary carbon market is where corporations, small businesses, and even individuals choose to purchase carbon offsets, their carbon credits to offset their emissions. This voluntary market has become increasingly popular with carbon neutral and net zero targets. And this voluntary market is growing like a hockey stick projected to grow from roughly $2 billion today to upwards of $50 billion by 2030. And while there is big money at stake, some would describe this space as a bit of a wild west, lacking transparency, accountability, and rigor. And that's where greenwashing can come into play, which ultimately can open up liabilities for companies involved. And how does this all apply to managing our technology, which we talk about here? In the IT asset disposition space, why are some companies offering carbon credits when others won't? And I'm sure it's not just this industry, too, where we find that. To dive into this conversation with me is Jordan Lipchuk, Director of Clean Energy at Zing. Jordan has deep involvement in many first-of-kind carbon projects and technology startups. Jordan earned his MBA with a specialty in finance from the University of Calgary, and is a Certified Sustainability, or ESG, practitioner. He has held various leadership roles in the energy and clean tech industries. And I'm so excited to have you here, Jordan, to dive into this conversation. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So let's first talk about Zing. What is it and what do you do at Zing? So Zing's a sustainable transportation company, and we're specifically focused on low-carbon fuels and low-carbon transportation. One of the unique things we're looking at is the electric vehicle space and how that can apply to the transportation and delivery and shipping sectors to lower emissions. Greenhouse gases in the transportation sector are a major contributor to the global emissions and climate change. And so we don't think electric vehicles are maybe the silver bullet for everything, but there is not only an economic case, but a sustainability case for EVs in that sort of space. 
And one way to be able to fund these transitions and the emission reductions is through the carbon markets. So we're really helping transportation companies monetize their emission reductions through carbon markets and carbon credits. Okay, awesome. So that's a great segue. What, Jordan, exactly is a carbon credit? So a carbon credit is one metric ton of CO2 that's been removed or avoided from the atmosphere. It started with the Kyoto Protocol, you know, way back when, and has since evolved through the Paris Agreement into a you know, whole bunch of different carbon markets. And there's a few standards to a carbon credit. It has to be real. It has to be additional, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit more today. It has to be measurable, quantifiable, and permanence is also another thing that we look at when judging a carbon credit. And those are the core carbon principles, as they're called. Is that right? Yes. Yes, they are. Okay. And now, in the introduction, we talked about the compliance versus the voluntary carbon markets. How do carbon credits differ between these two markets? Yeah, very much so. In the voluntary market, these are often driven by net zero pledges from corporations and are listed on major, uh, generally international registries where projects will be listed on these registries. People are doing this voluntarily. The price on the voluntary market does fluctuate a lot based on the type and quality of credit, which we'll talk about, but you're always knowing it's going to be there. So there's a certain level of permanency. On the compliance side, you're mostly dealing with regulated compliance markets. And usually governments set these up. It could be at a state or, or at a federal level. But basically, they've set a price on carbon and consider various different carbon schemes, whether it's a cap and trade or a low carbon fuel market. But basically, they've put a price on carbon, almost like a carbon tax, and then allowed companies to participate in this market and earn credits to help incentivize and reduce, reduce emissions in that area. And the credits between these two markets are actually not interchangeable. Is that right? Very true. Yes. Yeah. So in the compliance markets, generally, they have to be used in that market. So even a compliance credit in the BC system in British Columbia, it can't be used for the federal system, or at least not yet. And sometimes they do allow some transfers in certain markets, but it's fairly restricted. Or in the voluntary market, it's a little bit more free flowing into different regions, but you definitely can't trade the two. There is there's sometimes protocols or projects that are taken from different markets and then applied there, but they'll create two very different types of credits. It's so interesting, right? Like, there, no wonder there's so much confusion because most people don't realize there's these two markets. And then most of the time, it's not interchangeable. There's some specific circumstances where they might be, but you can understand why people are getting confused. In the voluntary market, how does something actually become a carbon credit? What does that process look like? Yeah. So I'll start off at the very beginning where a registry, which is sort of like a carbon exchange or a verifier in a sense, where they'll set up a particular type of protocol, which is like a project type or outside of North America, they're called methodologies. So basically a method to be able to create a carbon credit because not all emission reductions create carbon credits. If you're doing good and reducing emissions, this is still a good thing, but only certain projects and protocols will create credits. So once you're able to find a protocol that aligns with a project that you're looking at, the first thing you'll need to be able to do is measure that and often try to set up this before shovels are in the ground. Uh, this is around additionality. So you don't want to be able to do a project and then try to sometimes claims, claim credits after. This is where it gets a bit confusing. You can sometimes do that in compliance markets, but for voluntary markets, generally, as soon as you put a shovel in the ground, 
you know, additionality is, is sort of removed. So you've done that due diligence, you find your project, you're moving forward. The first thing you want to be able to do is, is how am I going to measure this? What's my baseline? And then how much am I removing or avoiding from the atmosphere? So you've got your, your baseline measurement, you've got your conversion or your emission reduction activity, which then needs to be measured as well. You need to verify that data from a third party. So you go through a third party audit, then you'll serialize the credits on the registry. And then the final step is actually trading or monetizing those credits as well. And these registries that are out there, how do they differ? You spoke about standards. Are they all using the same or similar standards or does it really depend? It does definitely depend. And the more reputable registries have harder standards, which usually fetch a higher price in the marketplace. And so, you know, what I often say is there's four main registries that you'll want to deal with in the carbon markets, which is VERA, ACR, the American Carbon Registry, CAR, the Climate Action Reserve, and I'm missing one. VERA, gold standard, gold, gold standard. Uh, gold, yeah, gold standard, VERA, ACR, and CAR. Okay. So those are the, the projects that you'll want uh, if you're looking at carbon credits for your projects to be registered on. And there are a lot of other registries that try to produce credits of a similar quality, but you're, uh, you're sort of playing with fire when you get to some of those you know, lesser known registries. Okay. So what do you mean by playing with fire? What does that insinuate? Well, we were t- talking about standards and you know, uh, carbon credits are often based on that third party verification based on the you know, additionality principle. And we really want to make sure that there's a certain level of transparency and trust if companies are going to or people are going to be putting you know, their funds or contributions into the programs like these. You want to make sure that they're real and that they're held to the highest standard. And so that's what you can expect from, you know, from those four registries that we talked about previously. But other registries, sometimes they're just, you know, sort of invented to uh, just with the thought of sort of profits in mind and not necessarily environment. Sometimes they're made with the sense of making more carbon credits and having a reduced standard. And, you know, it depends on who you talk to. But, you know, in my opinion, that's just not in the essence of the program. And so when you're dealing with registries that are lesser known, lesser trusted, there are still some good projects, you know, potentially out there. But I'd be very careful on dealing with, you know, outside of the big four registries on really doing the due diligence on those projects to make sure they're real. Okay. So we talked about additionality being one of those core carbon principles. And I wanted to get into that a little bit more. So additionality, well, first of all, let me ask you, what does additionality really mean in the context of carbon credits? In a voluntary market, I'll start with compliance. Basically, that's going above and beyond the regulation. But mostly what we do when we talk about additionality, and especially in the voluntary sense, is it's going above and beyond the normal acts of business. The activity that you're doing has to be additional to the normal course of your business. And so if some companies, for instance, had a cleared a bunch of trees to do a development project, and then we're like legally obligated to do reclamation, you're not able to earn carbon credits on that reclamation project. I mean, because you're legally obligated you know, to do that. Same thing if you have a bunch of trees in a forest and you're like, I'm going to decide not to cut those down and you never really plan to cut down those trees. That's, that's not additional. That's not real. And so that wouldn't be eligible for projects. The other Final thing I'll note on additionality is also, you know, the need for that monetary incentive. I talked about shovels in the ground and that being a big eligibility point. Carbon credits are there to take these projects and make them, you know, just push them over the line. 
of being viable. It, it shouldn't be the only reason that, that these projects go forward, but we often look for it. You know, this project wouldn't have gone forward without that monetary incentive from the carbon credits. And so that's also another distinguishing point of of additionality and why once the shovels are in the ground, we often think like, well, you didn't really need the carbon credit then. Interesting. So basically, if it's business as usual, or as soon as it becomes business as usual, then it's no longer eligible. And it has to be above and beyond what's what's currently happening. And I think in the IT asset disposition space, that's one of the areas of confusion, because there are some companies that are offering carbon credits, but there's other companies that are saying, no, we don't think this actually meets additionality because this space has been around for decades. So how is it that there can be two approaches to additionality, do you think? Uh, I mean, there's definitely a lot of gray in additionality and subjectivity about, you know, what real solar means and, you know, what is quantifiable. And so there, there is definitely some debate when it comes to additionality, but I would see it say, you know, the two major reasons why you'll see this separation is because of the different registries. And some registries will accept a lower standard of additionality. And then so people think that if they can develop a credit, you know, on one of these registries or systems that, you know, it, it must be additional. And then, you know, other, I guess, more people that are seeking higher additionality or looking at those other standards will point to, you know, there's a reason why these projects aren't listed on these higher end registries. You know, it's because they're not they're not deemed as, as additional. But one other point around you know that space. Oh, and it's also what I was going to say was. Something like this, uh, maybe think about agriculture. And so there was some conservation protocols, uh, conservation cropping protocols, I should say, around agriculture. And basically, they were trying to phase in a new type of process, uh, no tilling to reduce emissions. And it started at a certain percentage, but once the practice was accepted, you know, by uh, it wasn't even the majority, but by a, a significant minority, I think it was thirty or forty percent of farmers, you know, started participating in this. They took away that protocol and, and didn't make it eligible anymore because it sort of did its job of transitioning the industry to a higher percentage of this activity. And once that was done, you know, it wasn't seen as additional anymore. Interesting. So then at that point, it became that business as usual practice. So additionality is something that's not permanent by the sounds of it can be flexible. How often would a carbon credit need to re-verify that additionality? That's an interesting question. And it differs a little bit depending on if you're on voluntary and compliance. So how I often uh, differentiate the two is in Voluntary markets, you have more longevity, where in a compliance market, you know, a government can come in and change the regulation sometimes quite quickly, but you have price certainty. And so in a compliance market, they set the price. You have a lot of certainty in what you're going to be able to sell that credit for. They're held to a pretty high standard, so there's not the same amount of due diligence needed in the compliance market. Sort of the price is the price for the most part, but you don't have that going concern. The regulation could change. Yeah, government, new government could come in. And so that longevity is, is definitely a higher risk in the compliance markets. In the voluntary markets, it's sort of the opposite. You have that longevity. Generally, protocols, they, well, they do have version you know, 1.1 and 2.2 and, and will sort of reiterate and update the standards you know, based on feedback going throughout the protocol and, and working with different project developers. But what you don't have is price certainty. Sometimes you have no idea what that price is going to be once you've done this project, and it could change a lot from today. The markets have been trending upwards, uh, you know, significantly in the next in the last few years, but uh, who knows what it's going to be in the future. And so those are sort of how the two different markets have sort of risks, but also how they deal with change in regulation. 
And that makes sense. As the world evolves, then you have to evolve with it. I want to understand a little bit more. So if a company offers a carbon credit and maybe it's a lower quality, it's been registered through one of the the registries that doesn't have not one of the four registries that you mentioned, what is the risk? Like, what's the so what? Why does it matter if a company gets registered on a, a lower quality register registry versus a higher quality one? And what's the so what factor for the company that they're offering the carbon credit to? Well, I'd say if you're looking at purchasing a credit or if it's part of a package, you may be paying for something that doesn't have really any value because it's particularly in the voluntary market, you know, some of these credits on other registries are worth pennies, cents. And then, you know, some credits are worth, you know, $20, $30, you know, sometimes significantly even more than that. And so you got to make sure that someone's not, you know, telling you you're purchasing a $20 credit when you're actually you're buying a, you know, a three cent credit or something like that. The other big risk is on so that reputation, integrity, and brand side. If you're making a claim with those credits where you're you know, offsetting certain emissions or going carbon neutral, and you look at certain regions like in Europe and even other areas that try to use lower integrity credits or weren't really honest with some of the reporting, and they're actually sued by certain regulatory bodies. And so I think there's not only a brand and a reputational risk of you know misleading the public or your consumers or, or your stakeholders with these credits that could be removed or revoked in the future if they're found to be an, an eligible. And now you've got this whole greenhouse counting disaster. They could be you know ousted in the media as non-legitimate, and then all your claims are sort of have to having to be backwalked. And then there is actually in certain areas, a, you know, a legal, a legal and financial component uh, and major risk as well. So I definitely be, would be careful on uh, any credits that I'm accepting, whether they're part of a package or, or part of a, you know, a general deal or transaction. And then especially doing additional due diligence if there aren't one on one of those registries. Like I said, there are some projects out there and some, some different registries that could be viable, but I'd be very, very cautious. And who is it within a larger corporation or company that would actually be the ones making these decisions on carbon credits? Because we're getting asked a number of questions from folks in operations and procurement and IT and other areas where they're asking us about carbon credits, but it seems like they're being told some information and then asking us where it's actually not part of their job. So who actually within a company makes the choice on a carbon credit and what to purchase and what to accept? Well, I think it has to start with the, the leadership of a company. So generally, you'll, you'll see companies that have made, or generally, you'll see companies that are interested in, in carbon market and in carbon credits have made some sort of net zero pledge. And so that generally will come from the, from the C-suite or from the board or from the executive team. And so those high-level standards and goals should be outlaid within that sort of ESG plan. From there, it, you know, we're seeing this more and more, you know, lately is there's actually a sustainability or ESG team that will, will then lead those conversations and those initiatives. And those people will hopefully, you know, have, have knowledge on the on some of the carbon markets and the types of, you know, credits they're looking for. Um, but on some more small or medium-sized organizations or even enterprise companies, sometimes you're seeing this you know, handled by you know, maybe the health, safety, and environment guy who, who's never really dealt with things like this before. Sometimes you're seeing it on the operations or finance side, seeing a lot of finance people you know, come in here through the sustainable financing lens or just trying to understand the profitability of certain projects. 
And so that's where I think there's a little bit of an information paradox and there's can be some people on the sides of the side of the table that have a lot more knowledge on these markets and can sort of use that information to their advantage. And then there's other people on the other side of the table that just think all carbon credits are the same and this is would be the value and, and really take it at face value. So I think right now you're dealing with all sorts of different types of people, you know, in this space. Yeah, and that actually makes a lot of sense based on some of the things that we've seen. And we've seen it in RFP responses that we need to make a statement about this. What would be your tips for if you're writing an RFP and you're looking for some kind of, well, in terms of carbon credits, what should companies be asking for, if anything, within RFP responses regarding getting carbon credits for other companies? That's another great question. So I'm full yeah. of great questions. If you're putting in an RFP seeking to get carbon credits, I mean, once again, you should really be able to have a few questions answered. Like, you know, are you looking for local projects or are you looking for projects abroad? You know, what type of project project type? Like there's you, they're generally classified in, into a few different areas. Nature based solutions being one. There is industrials. There's renewables. And there's more technology-based ones as well. And so figuring which category you guys are, what categories that you're wanting to focus on, what type of projects that you'd be interested on, and which really aligns with your company values. And so those softer questions, I think, are key when you're going out to market and actually knowing internally before you go to market to help narrow it down because there's such an array of credits and standards, and, and you really want to have that figured out before you go to market. When you're finding a, you know, a partner to work with on this, Definitely, you know, reputation and how long they've been in the industry, I think, goes a long way. And back to the registries, which registries do you deal with? If you're dealing with a lot of the top carbon developers and brokerage firms, you know, they should be operating in, you know, full transparency. And so on an RFP, I'd really be wondering, you know, what types of due diligence are they doing on their project types? What registries did they deal with? And what type of information can they provide? Like some, uh, obviously, a perspectives or a project plan outline on those actual uh, carbon offset projects that they're trying to sell as well. So there's a few things that you want to check out before you go to RFP. And there's definitely a few questions around registries and quality and transparency that you want to ask when when seeking a partner. Mm, that's great advice and really speaks to the whole yeah, quality of the project, making it meaningful to your company. And looking under the hood is also something that I that occurred to me, like listening to you speak, make sure you always look under the hood. So as we summarize this conversation, we always ask for one piece of advice for business managers or business leaders who are thinking about carbon credits and thinking they need carbon credits, what would that one piece of advice be that you would give those folks on carbon credits? One piece of advice on carbon credits. It's hard to give just one. I mean, maybe I can sum it up in one and maybe one or two sentences, but I would be careful, but I would also take advantage and, and use them for what, for what they're meant to be done, which is when you're looking at carbon credits, I guess my, how I would sum it up is the first thing you need to be able to do when you're looking at any carbon offset project or looking at offsetting emissions is see what you can do internally. You're going to look for your lowest cost of what we call abatement. And so see what you can be able to do internally before you go to carbon credits. When you're doing these activities and you're just like, oh, I'm going to offset these, that's not the way the system works. It's supposed to be a short to midterm solution to help us get to net zero by 2050. And so the first thing you want to do internally is is measure. Uh, You can't change anything unless you actually know what your emissions are. So having a good foundation of GHG accounting. The next is reduce internally and then offset. So reduce as much as you want. And those last hard to remove, hard to abate emissions, 
those are what you want to offset. And so that's that's what I'd leave leave all the all the listeners to is you know follow follow that system and, and use the credits what, what they're for. And if you have a chance to develop them and monetize your own emission reductions. Let's uh, you know make sure that they're additional and make sure that we're using those funds to go into the proper programs. That is a wonderful summary, I think, of this whole conversation. So I appreciate it. Jordan, how can listeners get in touch with you? LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. So look me up on, on LinkedIn at Jordan Lipchuk, or you can reach out to me on email at jlipchuk at zing.com. Awesome. Thank you, Jordan. I learned so much from this conversation and I hope our listeners and viewers did as well. Join us in our next episode and remember, head on over to quantumlifecycle.com slash podcast or follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. This is a Quantum Lifecycle podcast. The producers are Sanjay Trivedi and Faiza Gavani. And that's it for today. We'll see you next time.